0: On demand. On demand.
1: Have you ever heard of Coronation Park? It's on St. Mary's, just south of Marion. Not a park you'd normally think of being connected to drugs and crime. But video captured this week showed needles and a bicycle chop shop. We'll speak to one of the women who led the charge to get it cleaned up. Keanu Reeves is already known as the nicest guy in Hollywood. Now it seems he's even nicer as he is being praised this week for the way he takes photos with women. And do you feel better knowing the Winnipeg Jets lost in the playoffs to the eventual Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues? I'm Brett McGarry, back from vacation. Alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, we are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, June 13th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Welcome back, Brett. Thank you very much. It's so nice to hear your voice in my headphones. Back in the saddle. See if I can shake off some of the rust. You'll be oh, fine. Rust. <laughs> what is it, six
2: days? It doesn't take long to no, set in. No, that's
1: true. That's fair. It doesn't, especially after we pulled our, I pulled my Vegas four times now, pulled my first all-nighter. Attaboy. Oh,
2: like from when to when? The, like you got up that day at.
1: Uh, I think we got up at like eleven o'clock. Okay, maybe ten. And then you didn't go to bed until the following morning, like yeah, when, like, like seven a.m.
2: Oh wow!
1: After eight eight thirty because uh,
2: PM?
1: Yeah, hey, no oh, eight a.m. Oh, the flight oh. was at eight twenty a.m. on uh, Monday.
2: Well, you get to that point in the night, it's like four in the morning, and you're like. Do I even bother? No, I'll we'll feel worse up. probably if I try for three hours.
1: So it certainly wasn't our intention. We went out for a nice dinner, we went to the Eiffel Tower restaurant, so we got to we got the table front and center in the corner with a nice view of the Bellagio Fountains and then we went to a show went to see a burlesque show at the Luxor. I had suggested, why don't we go see a Cirque du Soleil show? But she said, why don't we go see a burlesque show? And I said, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, And so that was cool. Tons of couples in that place. And then we were just sitting in the hotel bar having our last drink, and we bumped into a couple of other people from Winnipeg who she's friends with, and suddenly it's 4 a.m., and we get back to the hotel, and I said, I'm not going to bed. I'm going to take a shower and drink some water and take some Advil. Uh, she took a nap, so I just packed everything up. And uh, when she woke up, she was not happy with life. <laughs> so, yeah. but I, I when I, I I was okay with it though, because like I said, once I got on the plane, I was out. Uh, so that was good. But yeah, happy to be back. Good to have you back. A direct flight. The, on the way out, yes. On the way back. The way back. The milk, cor- oh, milk no, no, you should no. always
2: do the opposite. On the way back from anywhere, pay for the direct flight. There on the wasn't, way there,
1: there wasn't who a cares how flight. long it takes? It wasn't offered the oh. day we were coming back. Yeah, the way out was great. We left at like 4.45 in the afternoon. We got in just after 6 on WestJet, and we flew back on WestJet as well, but we had to go to Calgary. And then we got there on noon, and we had a four-hour layover, so we didn't get to Winnipeg till about seven o'clock.
0: Yeah, four-hour layover is always fun when you are <coughs> sleep-deprived and yeah. other things. <laughs> yeah. So uh,
1: I loaded up on Carl's Jr. at the Vegas airport and uh, <laughs> fell asleep on the plane. It was all right; it was just a long day. Right on, uh, man. So yeah, it's good to be back. Good to be back. <laughs> Gary and McNabb thank you very much for joining us this morning on the Start in 680 CJOB Gloria, it's catchy it's going to be stuck in my head for five days probably that's what happened the last time we talked about this what's the connection again Gloria
0: St. Louis Blues well the Blues stunk the first part of the season they were terrible and they were in Philadelphia as the story goes and they were out at a karaoke bar and a couple of the players got up and we're singing songs, and somebody in the crowd yelled, Play
1: Gloria! <laughs> and someone did, and
0: they took it back to the dressing room.
1: And it sort of stuck. And it became their, the song every time they scored a goal? Every time they won a game, they won a game. at
0: Enterprise C- Center in St. Louis, this was the game that they would play. Well, and I, it sort of sounds like glorious, yeah, too, right? It's a really
2: odd choice. It's a the, super the, but odd, but odd choice. background the story, the problem now is that they're stuck with this song. Like, after Good this point. season, don't you think Gloria has to live in infamy? Like, I mean, forever?
1: I Well, maybe. If, if the fans have embraced it, then why not? Well, I'm trying to remember. The goal song
0: for the Hartford Whalers <laughs> was absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and I have to look it up because I want to make sure something bonanza. Brass bonanza. Brass bonanza. Brass bonanza. Uh, let's see if we can play some of this for people that have never heard this. I'm going to press play on this, Jeff to transition uh, out of Gloria into Brass Bonanza. Oh, I
1: like this. I like this. <clears throat>
2: you have to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this part's not so great. This is more like
1: oh, a... I
2: dig it. You do? I, I dig it. This feels like a 1980s commercial for, like, some brand new product to get you to clean your house, like... You got states.
1: <laughs> I would love to see some team adopt the Trollolo song <laughs> as their goal song, yeah, or their victory song. Yeah, love that tune. But this is also the sound on top of Gloria. This was the sound last night from Ballpark Village in St. Louis. Freedom! 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 Freedom!
3: Freedom!
1: Boisterous, pretty good, impressive, not bad at all. Blues. Jenna Fisher's going to be happy today. Jenna Fisher, Pam from The Office. Mm. Jim from The Office. John Krasinski was the Bruins fan of that uh, That's right. on-television couple.
0: Yeah, we uh, played some audio earlier in the week of Jenna Fisher saying, come on, it's my turn. It's my yeah, turn. So exactly. Pam, it is your turn. Now, <laughs> so the Blues won the Stanley Cup last night, and their worst to first story in the standings, that's like one for the ages, right? We already mentioned the the fact that parents will be tormenting their children with this story as to why you never ever give up. Goaltender Jordan Bennington, who drew the ire of Jets fans when he uh, took the game winning puck and sort of threw it in the garbage essentially when the Jets beat uh, the Blues I think it was in game four but that's uh, off the top of my head and um, yeah Those are hockey stories, right? Bennington was in the minors. His story's incredible, whether you like him or not. Uh, That's the hockey side. It's not all about hockey in the on-ice sense. Um, We know hockey brings our community together. And one little girl inspiring people across North America with her story. If you didn't see it yesterday, she is 11-year-old superfan Layla Anderson. Her reaction to the news that she was attending Game 7 went viral yesterday. Here's the audio. If you
4: could watch the game anywhere in the world tomorrow, anywhere in the world, where would
2: you watch your boys play Game 7? Boston. Boston. What if I told you the Blues called mm-hmm. and they want you at the game?
4: What? How? Doctor said it's okay.
5: No, he didn't. Mommy, no, he didn't. He didn't.
1: Oh my God.
2: <laughs> I'm going to Boston. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I've listened to that <laughs> one three times. And that still it makes me teary. How
0: nice. It's not making you teary, it's making you neat. <laughs> Let's be honest.
2: I am I keep thinking about that mom and about how you just wanna do things for your kids. And if you could bring joy in that moment, my God.
0: Well, Anderson was diagnosed with a rare disease that affects her immune system. This was last fall. She had a bone marrow transplant in January. So not only was she in the stands for Game 7 at TD Garden and for the Blues' historic win, one of my personal favorite Blues is Colton Pareko. And he made sure that Layla was on the ice for the celebration. And the NHL network captured the moment just beautifully. Oh, Layla on screen there. She's right, right there. there. About to the get screen. the call. This what is amazing a right moment here. I'll tell uh, you this what, will this be. This is this is one thing, but life and dif- and those other stories blow all this away. And how awesome it is, St. Louis Blues, to bring this young lady
1: here. Let's in West- listen. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. Let's give her a shot. Oh, that's incredible. That's awesome. Chills. Look at that. That's what yes. it's all about. A little kiss it's for the That's what Cups. it's
6: all about. I love
1: it. So good. Well, we forget it's just a game sometimes, fellas. This
3: uh, reminds you this of puts that. puts it
6: in perspective. Yeah, that's
3: impressive. What great camera!
6: And it's so authentic. Yeah, it's, it's just so really, good. truly fun to watch.
0: Yes. I mean, you, you see the way that these players, they play for her. And they're, she's there for them all the time. I mean, it's an awesome, awesome story, man. I'm so pumped that she's here. Yeah, tough not to get choked up listening to that story. And Braco doing the traditional, time-honoured tradition of holding the cup above his head and then bringing it down so Layla could kiss it not once, but twice. It was a very special moment, and you can debate all you want whether or not Jets fans should be comforted by the fact their team lost to the eventual Stanley Cup champ, but it turns out that some of the Blues players are pretty good guys after all.
2: Yeah, that makes me like them a whole lot more
0: most Canadians of every, any team. I saw way, that. That was actually
2: a good tweet going players. around last night. Was about I think there was four Canadians on the Bruins and 19 uh, on the Blues. Wow. Including
0: Alexander Steen, born Ma- in Winnipeg, Thomas Steen's son, yeah, and Joel Edmondson from uh, Brandon, Manitoba, who got into, I think, all but two of the playoff games, mm. maybe four, he sat out. He was like their sixth, seventh defenseman. Mm. So, uh, great story for a couple Manitobans. Uh, one at the beginning of his career, more or less, and and Alexander Steen, who is uh, not necessarily in the twilight of his career, but certainly an 11-year veteran uh, at the latter stages of his
1: now, the St. Louis Blues took 52 years to win a Stanley Cup. That leaves the Vancouver Canucks as one of the two oldest teams in the league to not win. Canucks uh, and the Buffalo Sabres both right. joined the NHL in 1970. Neither has won the Cup, but that also means Cam Poitras pointed this out,
0: and I put a spring in my step that the Toronto Blue, uh, Blue Jays, Blue, uh, Maple Leafs, <laughs> now have the longest streak without a Stanley Cup. Uh, they have not won since 1967. He had to, he had to go there, hey? He had to go there, yes.
2: One <laughs> my favorite tweets last night we we're talking about the blues being such good people and the Canadians came from a <coughs> global reporter in Toronto, Camille Carmali, and he was talking about the idea that he likes to think he's a good person, but the happiness he got from watching Brad Marchand in tears last night made him realize he's not a very good person. Really? <laughs> and I was like that's pretty funny because there's also, you know, you have that joy and you're happy for people. Shout and forward. then there's that odd, there's that honest part of you that's also like Yeah, I don't feel bad for you at all right now. I don't like you.
0: (laughs) Well, Mershan made a really big mistake on the Blues' second goal. He tried to get to the bench, and then he went to the bench and set his team up for disaster. St. Louis scored a goal with eight seconds left in the first period. And they had actually had a clock going in the first period. St. Louis went 16 minutes, I think, uh, between shots in that first period. They only had four shots on goal in the first period, and two of them went in. Boston was absolutely dominant for most of that first period. It, was, it had to have been heartbreaking for the Bruins and their fans.
1: Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Here's the headline at a website called The Takeout. Hearse stops at Burger King. I'm trying to remember. When I worked in fast food, if I ever saw a hearse come through, I had a bicycle come through. Driver was hungry. People
2: walk through. You see that. Yeah. Like, not supposed certain, to. I know, but at certain hours of the night, I, I got to get a burger.
0: <laughs> yeah. Jack yeah. in the Box in Phoenix,
1: Arizona. <laughs> I went to Jack in the Box
2: in Nashville. And they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't serve me. Mm-hmm. I
1: no. walked up to one. Yeah, they, they don't serve the walk-up customers. They're not supposed to. It's a safety thing. They, they're trying to... They can't. They can't set a precedent because you know someone comes screaming through the drive-through. A lot of people get to the window and they say, "Ah, oh, I don't have any money or whatever," and then they just blow through it. And if they come ripping around the corner and there's someone standing there, that could be a problem. But what's going? What's the deal with the hearse? You tell me. This guy decided that it would be his dying
0: wish to get a bacon double cheeseburger, like. You could argue that potentially it might be what killed him in the first place, but we don't need to go down the road. It's just a kind of a strange last wish, looking at a picture of this hearse with the bacon. So he's already
2: dead. So yeah. He's already dead. dead. Yeah, it oh, yeah, like he's in the back. <laughs> it's not, not a, a last supper.
0: This, it's... this, is, this is part of his, of his final journey, right?
2: I think he had joked with it. I, I'm going to assume it's a joke. He had joked, He must be a Beat Burger King fan. And so uh, according to his kids, that he before he died, he said that he had hoped... His cremated (laughs) remains could, uh, on the way to the crematorium, sorry, he could make one last stop for some charl (laughs) broil. You would think there would be health department
0: rules about having a dead body on the restaurant property.
2: He's in (laughs) a box.
0: It's all good, man. It's all good.
2: But God is asking, like, what would be your last meal? Eaten alive not dead. Eaten yeah. Alive. Oh, I right, <laughs> wish. I texted Brett about this last night, and Brett's like, "Oh, I don't know about Burger King. I think I would have picked Wendy's for yeah. my last."
1: He's already thought about it. Yeah. Well, if I were, if I had to pick a fast food burger, uh, yeah, I, 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 like the Wendy's burger over the. I like Burger King. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I like going to Burger King, but I, I find it just sits sits kind of like rot in uh, the stomach. I like
2: that smell of that charbroil.
1: Yeah, I think it's just fake. Smell. I don't care. I think it's like an incense stick. Oh, o- <laughs> char. Like that. Just it's like a-
2: an oil. They oh, just drop it. char! <laughs> trick,
1: right, trick you. So what would the last meal be? Cam Poitras. Uh, Well, I'd
0: have to go with something my grandma probably made, a big bowl of, uh, it's like this uh, Hutterite soup called strunkel. It's uh, green beans and potatoes, cream, uh, chicken broth, uh, it's and dill, lots of dill. It's my favorite thing on the planet. Your last meal is soup. One hundred percent soup. That's, yeah, that's how, fascinating. S- Strunkle Hutterite soup for my grandma. That's sounds 100% like something they made meal. when they had nothing left in the e- house. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <It's cool. laughs> what do you got in the garden? Throw it in a pot and get it going. My favorite thing in the world. That's what the last thing I would eat. It sounds delicious, Jeff yeah. Braun.
1: Uh, I th- I've got no problem with the bacon cheeseburger. I it wouldn't matter though because there's
0: just no way to enjoy your last meal if you know it's your last meal. I would just be concerned about. My
2: impending death. Pretend you're, <laughs> pretend you're like a puppy, and you don't know that the walk you're about to go on is going to end. Aww. Oh my what? gosh! What is really? <laughs> dark.
1: <laughs> <into
2: this>. <laughs> <laughs> go, your it dark art? Hey, that dog didn't know. We're going for a walk. Oh, we're going oh, for a walk. Man. Sure, we're going for a walk.
0: You know It's kind of funny. I have zero problem talking about the guy in the box on his way yeah, but to you're internment. you the dog? But, but the dog gets me worked up. Jeff Jeff Forche. I would like, uh, I don't know, maybe lobster,
1: shrimp. Some kind of pasta? Caramelized onions? Caramelized onions. Yeah. You gotta have the caramelized onions. It's not a last meal without caramelized onions.
0: And will that be on your tombstone? It's not a last meal without caramelized yes. onions.
3: Put that on there, please. Put
1: it on a t shirt.
2: <laughs> what about you,
1: McNabb?
3: Uh,
2: I think it would, ha- it's, a, it's a hard one for me, but I think it would be something like in nachos or chip related, just some pure salt crunch. It's a snack. Yeah, but I like I often am always like, who wants nachos for supper? And everyone's like, that's not a meal. I'm like, oh yeah, it is. Yeah, something like that.
1: Like volcano nachos from Margaritaville. Yeah. Or it's like a like a. Would you want a mountain of them?
2: No, I like like I like just minimal, a little bit of meat. You don't have cheese, to worry about the ramifications onions. I'm not worried about though. that. I like to have. I like and it has to have some guacamole. But a good plate of nachos is like my favorite thing.
0: Mackling, uh, well, it's funny that Cam mentions uh, basically. A meal that was derived and made from what's left over in the cupboard. And I've got a good friend from Newfoundland and he says, yeah, we used to have lobster sandwiches for lunch every day. Mm. It was like, you know, poor people's food. My favorite food is... Lobster. So it would be steak and lobster, probably a strip loin, mm. medium rare mm. steak would be lobster yeah. and real butter. It's got to be real butter. And don't just bring me like the hot butter in the side dish. Like it's got to have the flame underneath it. So it's continuously burning double stuffed baked potato and uh, sourdough bread. Sound good? Couldn't complain about that. That That
2: actually sounds really good. I'm hungry right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is making me hungry. I'd probably go with the Meat Lovers Pizza from either Santa Lucia Mm. or the Carnivore from Tony's Pizza. Now I'm
2: thinking pizza. I made some bad choices today.
1: Yeah, when I got back from, uh, from my trip, the first thing we did was call Santa Lucia. We're like, we're hungry, we need some pizza. We had pizza three times, but we're going to have some more pizza. And we called San Lucia. Awesome. And uh, that would, I think that would be it. Because I could eat pizza every day. I have to read this text message. Okay.
0: I think it's directed at Loren. Oh, I know it is. Darkest thing I, and <laughs> in capitals, ever heard on your show, LOL. I'm telling John Wick.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I
4: was trying to make him feel better. Didn't I just
2: explain to you yesterday how I grew up on a farm. Yes! So the this farm dog went for a walk, man.
0: <laughs> Never came back? Did not. There was a gunshot somewhere. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Oh, now you've just heard <laughs> <by>. oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 pipe.
2: Oh, <laughs>
1: McNab McNabb, you showed me some images and video this morning on Facebook. I've shared one of those videos to our Instagram. What's happening in Coronation Park? Well, it's a
2: surprising one, I think, for some people. We've been talking a lot this year about meth needles and how the growing needle problem has the Bear Clan on record pace for picking up syringes. I think they grabbed 20,000 syringes in the first three months of this year alone. But the scourge of meth means these needles are now being left in all sorts of public parks and spaces. St. Boniface Street Links works with some of the city's most vulnerable, including addicts, And that work also includes a bike patrol through the St. Boniface neighborhood. And this week they made a really concerning discovery in a park just off St. Mary's, which is Coronation Park. Marianne Willis is the director of St. Boniface Street Links and joins us now. Good morning, Marianne.
4: Good morning, Lauren.
2: Well, tell us about this bike patrol. Where were you earlier this week and and what did you discover?
4: Well, I have to say I have uh, some burning muscles where I didn't know we had muscles. (laughs) I've actually been riding uh, the bike myself uh, with about seven other members. And uh, we cover a very large area of St. Boniface, all of Old North St. Boniface. And we go right through to St. Mary's Road and do Coronation Park and that whole area or into Norwood Grove, and uh, we'll be moving into Norwood Flats actually next week. Um, Yeah, it was really uh, surprising for us to find what we found in in, uh, Coronation Park. And it wasn't a camp, actually. It was a cart. uh, So on Monday, Monday. We were there. We found a picnic table turned upside down, and beside it, there was a skill saw and a whole lot of bikes that had obviously, uh, well, they'd come from somewhere. And a chop shop had been set up, and I'm not sure where they were getting the power for the saw, but anyway, it was there and had been kind of abandoned and left. The next day, we found uh, the cart with literally hundreds of needles, uh, little pots for Cooking meth and blowtorch in the car, cart for uh, for also for cooking the meth. We found uh, a butcher knife. We found well, you saw the pictures. I mean, it was it was one of the it was everywhere in the park. It was just it, it looked like a war zone there. Sounds so, like uh, a portable
0: it, meth lab is what it sounds like, Marion.
4: Well, yeah. So the uh, Winnipeg Police Service and the City of Winnipeg responded very quickly. And uh, the mess was all cleaned up. We went back yesterday morning and the park has returned to its, uh, you know, its normal state, which is a great place for families and uh, community to get together. Um, but uh, what we came across is pretty indicative of what's going on over here. We actually know that uh, that, that wasn't a cap- camp, that those activities are actually linked to a house here in St. Boniface. And uh, I'm on a mission right now to find out uh, who the owner is of the house because it's the tenants in the house that are uh, linked to uh, the mess we found in um, in the park. We've also uh, been going along the riverbank and looking uh, specifically for mess camps. We're finding quite a few of them. And we actually took down two of them yesterday. We're looking to the city today to go and clean up along the riverbank. And uh, we've taken the two individuals... Uh, that were in those camps into Moorbrook House, they were quite willing to come with us and quite happy to enjoy a bath and a hot meal and do some laundry. And we're going to look at how uh, and where we uh, work to house these individuals, um, you know, hopefully by by the weekend.
2: Marian, we know in the warmer months that we will often see homeless by... The Red River setting up at camps and all the other, but I, you used a phrase that I hadn't heard before, and perhaps maybe some listeners might be feeling the same, in the sense of a meth camp. What do you mean by a meth camp? Just a place where people are going to do drugs? Well, you know,
4: well no, they actually established these. It looks like camps, and you'll see tarps, and you'll see that people are actually, you know, have their personal belongings and they're staying there. But actually what these camps are, they're, they're places where people are gathering together And actually doing mess together, whether it's by injection or smoking it or whatever. But those camps also have another purpose. And they act as uh, sort of uh, places where you can uh, chop up bikes and where you can hide uh, stolen goods. And uh, so we're we're taking those down. You know, there's a lot of controversy right now over the city RFP uh, to contract with somebody to go out and take down some of these sites. And, uh, and I support that RFP because I think we have to start looking at homelessness uh, through a bigger lens. We need to realize that there's a whole new face to homelessness here. And it is uh, homelessness as a consequence of an undealt uh, with um, methamphetamine epidemic in the city and this province. And so, you know, we're certainly not going to support anybody taking down the shelter of a vulnerable person. For whom that is their only home and resource, but uh, a lot of what we're seeing over here doesn't have anything to do with that. These are actual mess camps where people are using uh, their uh, storage places for stolen goods and uh, chop shops. And uh, so, you know, I'm also on a mission to see if we what what do we have to do to get the uh, the metal places to stop taking. All these uh, bike parts that are are coming to them from you know people out there that are bringing them at, on on bikes you know they're pulling carts behind uh, you know those bike parts have become currency for meth and it has to stop and so we we have to uh, look at the whole big picture here.
2: Marian, we only and have uh, we have here. we're running out of time, yeah. but I just quickly wanted to say yes or no before we let you go. Is this new? Have you have you seen these kind of camps last summer? No.
4: So Not over here. A, a
2: whole other layer to the issue. Marion Willis is with St. Boniface Street Links. Thanks for joining us this morning, Marion. Yep, thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Mackling McGarry and McNabb. Keanu Reeves. Star of John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, came out last month. It's an excellent film. He popped up by surprise on a Netflix movie I watched uh, a couple of last week called Always Be My Maybe, (laughs) where uh, he plays sort of a a heightened version of himself, Mm -hmm. like a real jerk version of himself. But it's Keanu,
2: like as Keanu, but...
1: But he's not Keanu. Okay. Because Keanu Reeves is renowned for how nice, nice he, he is. Nice he is, yeah. And in this movie, he's a complete doofus.
0: Well, h- how about this? Yesterday, I was on social media, and someone posted footage of Keanu Reeves on, you know how they used to interweave Canadian montages and little vignettes of stuff, kids on farms and whatnot on Sesame Street? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keanu Reeves was one of those kids. On Sesame Street? Yeah, used to be on the CBC and then some other show. Oh, my God. And I'm like, I'm going, geez, I I think I remember that because – I think Keanu Reeves is, what, 52?
1: Yeah, somewhere
0: around there. So, you know, we're the same vintage, more or less. <laughs> so I, I, I remember him doing these little these little interjections, and uh, who could forget when he came to Winnipeg to play Hamlet. So yep. there's a genuine connection, I think, uh, with Canadians and Winnipeggers, with Keanu Reeves, and I think uh, the respect factor might go up a couple notches for folks after we tell them this uh, story that's also being revealed on social media. The
1: headline at globalnews.ca and you could read more about it on 680cjob's Instagram. We've linked it to our story, but the headline is Fans praise Keanu Reeves for how he takes photos with women. And I've never looked closely, but somebody pointed this out and they sent out a tweet which captured a lot of attention and uh, it just says LOL Keanu ain't taking no chances. And it's they've they've captured four pictures of him with various women. One of them is Dolly Parton. And he, in all four of the pictures, they point to the way his hands are. So he might have his arm around the Woman, but you can clearly see his fingers are kind of sticking out
2: like his hands, them. not really touching them. Yeah. yeah,
0: I would
1: say more his hands or his arm is behind
0: them as opposed to around them. He's they're in his aura, so to speak, in his wingspan. But yeah, he's got he's got a no go zone, uh, and and we can only imagine or believe that it's because uh, he's being respectful.
1: Yeah, there are some that are that are wondering if it's because of. The Me Too movement, and maybe he just isn't looking to take any chances, but others are saying, well, that might be going a little bit far.
2: He could be also, there's speculation, he's a person who's pretty aware of personal space. I can imagine if you're a celebrity, people take liberties in the sense of like you're so well known to them that you might go in and hug them before you even even know who they are. You put your, you know, you give them a high five because celebrities to us, we see them all the time. Right, so so they're like friends. So they feel like you're a friend. I can imagine that as a celebrity, you might get, um, like, I don't want to say inappropriately touched, just touched, right? Like, stop touching me, right? So he might be just very aware of the personal space. But we were talking this morning just about the idea in general about how conscious we all, I think, are more, Brett, in terms of how, you know, if you pose for a photo, should you really be putting your arm on someone's... Shoulder, or should you be putting your hand on their back, or where should you be placing everything to be respectful of, of their space too?
1: When women, uh, we have guests come into our studio sometimes, and we'll get pictures afterward to post to social media. And I always feel I never know what where to put my hands. Do I put it around you? Do I? I'll, sometimes I'll just end up kind of. Propping my elbow on the shoulder, just because I'm Greg, you and I are both tall guys, and that often works for the height. It's just like, well, this is a good resting spot. I'll put my ar- arm there. But if uh, it's a taller woman, I I don't know. i, 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 I to to, touch you. I don't know. Have you always
2: been like that? Like that's something you've been pretty conscious of for a while. That's not just
1: recently. Not just recently, but it's I think more so recently. Yeah. But I've always because of to, all
2: the conversations out there just about.
1: Yeah, and it's not that I don't want to get in trouble. I just, I don't know where the line of respect yeah. is. Like, I don't want to well, be I disrespectful. Th- I think we're
0: just more aware of it now, that there that there is that line. And, and uh, maybe we're unconscious of it in the past, not because you were outwardly trying to disrespect anyone, but it just wasn't a topic mm-hmm. of discussion. I sort of let the other person dictate what the level, level of comfort is in terms of how close they want to get. If they put their arm around my back and they put it on my hip or something like that, then I feel comfortable, but I've very much taken to the whole idea. I'm a hugger, mm-hmm. and me too. Yeah, and so we often will meet people in our line of work, have a discussion with them, and there's a connection that's created, and you get a sense. And I'll be like, "I'm a hugger. Are you a hugger? Yeah, I'm a hugger. Give me a hug." That was maybe something that didn't happen two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I do would suggest always, I,
2: I try really hard to ask or say. Uh, and that's not about the hugging. The hugging one, I have a hard time c- because I am a hugger, and I'll be halfway into the hug and be like, "Oh, I'm really sorry. You might not, <laughs> you might not want this." But when when it comes to you know the picture posing, I do try to think. Is it, I'll say, "Is this okay? You, okay, if I put my hand here," because, and, and and I'm hoping that everybody is forward enough to respond yes or no but sometimes I also think maybe the person would just say yes because that's the easiest response yeah,
1: boy. and you yeah. might not Lots be okay with it. About. And fans are saying it's not about taking chances it's about being considerate and respectful mm-hmm. qualities that Keanu carries in spades and the stories of Keanu Reeves and his kindness are truly legendary like if you've heard something about Keanu something crazy that he's done with his money it's probably because it's true the guy spends a lot of money on cast and crew he gets to know all of the crew members and I he, I, I can't remember the Full story, but he was on a plane somewhere and the plane had to land well before its destination. So he rented a bus and got everybody on the bus onto the destination. Uh, I, I saw a video of him sitting on a subway because he still rides the subway mm-hmm. and he'll get up and let people take his spot. And uh, someone else, other Twitter users pointed out his hand placement is not unusual for Koreans. It's called manner hands or hover hands, oh. and it's a type of ge- it's a type of gesture that's a sign of respect. Wow! So there, he, that he might that might be intentionally what he's doing. He may have looked into it and said, "This is a way that I can show some respect without being a creep."
0: I dig stories like this. It's great. Uh, it opens a, a broader discussion. It also gives us an opportunity to talk about Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bill and Ted's excellent. An adventure is it two or three? It'll be the third one, right? Because they weren't in the second. Like they weren't in the second one, right? Keanu Reeves and. Yeah. Were they? Yeah, but it was just that journey. bad. It was just that bad. I didn't
1: see it. Bill and Ted's bogus Journey. <laughs> now they have to save the universe, I think. Oh, I'm trying also,
2: to figure out if I ever saw that one.
1: It wasn't nearly as good it as was the first terrible, one. It was terrible, I think. Oh, and another listener pointing out as well, and I just saw the trailer about this. Drex was talking about this on The Shift overnight. Keanu's going to be in a big video game next year called Cyberpunk 2077. I just saw footage. It looks really cool. And uh, speaking of pictures, remember when John Rhys Davies was here a couple of years yes. ago? Uh, the, the actor who played Gimli and uh, Lord of the Rings? And he was in Indiana Jones. He grabbed her. He he pinched my butt. Did he pinch yours? (laughs) No. He was trying to when when we took pictures. He was trying to soften us up because we were both nervous. And he gave me a squeeze. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) we had this lengthy conversation about about, Harvey
2: Weinstein. (laughs) We just had this lengthy conversation about being respectful and when you take photos and go into hug. And
1: yeah, it was well. It certainly made me laugh. He knew how to get get a smile, so it was funny. All right.
2: Last month, I believe it was when we had an interview with the union representing a lot of the prison guards and the correction officers, and they were talking about a rise in violence in the prison. And in their opinion, part of that had to do with new legislation that meant that they could no longer put prisoners in segregation or 24-hour isolation. And now we're hearing that this new law that was supposed to come into place Tuesday is actually changing. Faced with the prospect that segregation is about to become illegal next week, the federal government asked Canada's top court, the Supreme Court, to delay or put an urgent stay on an 18-month-old ruling that has declared segregation unconstitutional. Corey Sheffman is a Winnipeg lawyer and joins us now to discuss this further. Good morning, Corey.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
2: So is this a good thing or a bad thing in your opinion? Well,
3: it, it depends. Do you think torture is a good thing? Because that's what this is. Solitary confinement has been uh, d- has been declared by uh, by the United Nations, by uh, other international bodies, by Canadian experts as torture, uh, and that's what's happening. Uh, it, it, you know, and we've seen in high-profile cases uh, across Canada um, the the terrible effect of solitary confinement on the people. Uh, who are uh, who are put in that situation. Uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago, Adam Capay in uh, northern Ontario, who was kept in solitary confinement for uh, months and months at a time, uh, people in those situations suffer serious mental health uh, degradation, uh, serious uh, physical health degradation. Uh, and that's what the court found. The court found that it is... Uh, it's unconstitutional because it, it is a, an unjust form of confinement. It is a form of torture. Uh, and the federal government's had lots of time to make the changes that they needed to make. They had lots of time to consult with the prison guards and the experts. They've already asked for multiple delays to this ruling. And the last time they did, the Court of Appeal said no more. This is the last time. So yep. this latest thing at the Supreme Court is a desperate attempt by the government.
2: We're going back to twenty seventeen, correct, when the Superior Court in Ontario originally struck down parts of this law and said you got to stop and change. And so it's been about eighteen months since the federal government could have could have come up with at least another plan. Is that right?
3: That's right. And they and since then they've been to the Court of Appeal twice. Uh, you know they they've got delays because you know we we of course we acknowledge that it's a. You know, the, the, the jails, the correctional centers need to change their policies. They need to adapt. They need to put new rules in place to deal with this change. Um, and so they had, they had this time. They had, like you said, 18 months. Uh, but now, you know, enough is enough.
0: What was the argument for having these options in terms of incarceration within prisons, Corey?
3: Uh, well, I'm not sure what you mean about options. So what the Court of Appeal recently said, or the last time, what they said was, you know, we, it's taken, too, taken you too long, government, to make these changes. But we recognize that you need to make these policy changes. And so if you're going to keep anyone in, in uh, solitary confinement for more than, I think it's five days, they need to uh, ha- have it reviewed by uh, a third party. Uh, basically, to, 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 to see whether it's actually necessary, rather than just a convenience for the
0: jail. And that's
3: really what this comes down to.
0: Well, what I meant by options is corrections obviously uses this as an option in terms of, uh, shall we use the terminology, discipline from segregating someone from the general population into solitary confinement. They, they do this for a reason. What is that stated reason? Well, I mean, you'll have to ask them what their reason is. What it looks like to us is convenience you know, it's easy
3: to take somebody out of the general population and put them into uh, into a cell by themselves. Uh, the problem is that co- what comes with being in that cell by themselves uh, is uh, extremely limited uh, time outside, uh, long periods of time with uh, the artificial light kept on. I mean, all of these things that we think about as, uh, as torture. Uh, and the problem is that what we fear is that the, you know, and what the court uh, seems to have been in, saying is that uh, the, the, the correctional institutions have been using solitary confinement as sort of like a convenient, you know, way of uh, controlling the population. And this comes down to something that probably one of the only things that I'm going to agree with the, the uh, guards on, and that's that the jails are overpopulated, grossly overpopulated. And you, so that leads to unsafe conditions for the guards and for the inmates, And it leads to these sort of slapdash solutions.
1: Corey, what do you say to somebody who says, well, if you got yourself into prison, if you get thrown into the hole, into solitary, too bad?
3: Well, I, I, would, I think the answer is actually pretty straightforward. Seventy percent of people in Manitoba jails haven't been convicted of a crime. They're not serving a sentence. They're not guilty of anything. They're there because they're waiting for trial. So I would say that I'd say to you that nearly three out of every four people there is being, you know, quote, punished for something that they're not actually guilty of. So, you know, I think that we have a fundamentally unjust system here and, you know, treating it as if, well, you know, you, you've, you did the crime, so you're going to do the time um, is ignoring some of the you know basic reality of who is actually in our prison.
0: Three-quarters of those in prison right now are awaiting trial. So the, we've got a whole other issue here, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've, you've got that
3: right. 70% of people in Manitoba jails are are, are not serving a sentence. They're, they're on remand, uh, either awaiting bail or, de, uh, or denied bail. The other important number to keep in mind is that 80%, yes, 80% of people in Manitoba jails are Indigenous. That's not because... Uh, indigenous people commit eighty percent more crimes than everyone else. It's because we've got a real a number of real problems in Manitoba jails, uh, and so when you think about you know what happens when we're using solitary confinement, well, it's Indigenous people who are being overly you know ex- um, uh, overly victimized by these by this this torture because again, that's what solitary confinement is. It's torture.
1: Corey Sheffman is a Winnipeg lawyer joining us live on CJOB. Corey, thank you for this. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Mackling McGarry and McNabb. The headline at CJOB.com. Wabanisa Insurance to be major tenant at new True North Square building. Now, the official announcement is coming later this morning, but this is at the old Family Hulls Family Bookstores location at uh, 382 Graham. Uh, That's sort of right across the street from the main part of the True North Square. Uh, So they're going to put a new building there. That's exciting. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's in that same block where they're going to be building the two hotels where the construction's underway there. If I'm picturing it right. And I, right had yeah. the, and I had the map, uh, the satellite map, just to confirm. And uh, according uh, to our reporting, True Norse real estate arm and James Richardson and son will own the new building. And it will also result in the demolition of the Royal Winnipeg Ballet Parkade. I've seen some conversations going on online concern about whether or not the Royal Winnipeg Ballet residents will be affected by this, but nothing that I have read has confirmed or denied that the residents would be affected by this construction. Because if you look at that Hull's store, it's quite narrow. It's quite a narrow strip of real estate. So it'll be interesting to see the conceptual designs of this. I'm anxious to see how many stories tall this mm-hmm. building's going to be, etc. because they're creating quite the cluster, if you include the Manitoba Hydro Building, and then of course, True North Square, and then the, the two um, towers for the hotels that are going to be built that's underway. That's uh, quite the two or three block area that is uh, becoming a hub of activity in the downtown. If
2: you haven't been down there for a while, it's worth a walk around and... And you know, the next time you even get to Bell MTS Center for a concert or something this summer, just go a little bit west and and go through that area because the dip, the change it makes on a ground level of the landscape around you, it starts to have that big city feel.
0: No question about it. You know, I, I've often in my head compared Lakeview Square, the development just uh, I guess it's south of the Delta. Well, it's part of the Delta. Lakeview Square had the Delta Hotel, then they've got the two Holiday Towers, and then there's also a, a building that's more for commercial uh, on the n- southwest corner uh, that would be I guess Carlton and York across from the convention center and I thought how, how is that any different you know there's a public space within that development but the public space far more inviting at True North Square it, it's much more open i think you would feel much more safe there's a there's that diagonal uh, appeal to it because it, it it connects certain things as opposed to just being stuck in the middle of these four tall buildings. So it's
1: not anything that's not been attempted in the past, but I think they're doing it the proper way here. And I like that one of the buildings from the side looks kind of like the province of Manitoba.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Gee whiz, man! Mm-hmm. I never yes, even well you are right. done.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if that's by design. I'm looking at a picture right now, and I I don't see a discernible reason as to why the, else they would do it. But it could have just been a happy coincidence. But yeah, it, it, and it's it's not like identical, but it just looks kind of. I like that.
2: I don't want to turn the conversation back to the whole. Downtown grocery store, because I know there's some who have written in about their family foods on Donald. There are places to shop that are nearby, but i do I do want to ask people what they think needs to come next. You know now that we have the towers, we have added condos, we have growing residential spaces downtown. Right. Is there something that's still missing, and it can be the grocery store is the answer, but what else do we need to put down there to make you feel like Winnipeg's downtown is becoming more I think it's shopping. The
0: answer for me is shopping. There's some great shopping in the Exchange District, mm-hmm. but so much of the shopping has disappeared from the south side of Portage where boutiques and whatnot. You know, Montreal, I was blown away. They've got the whole underground city in Montreal. Uh, so if you don't want to battle the elements, you don't have to, but St. Catherine Street at the very same time is a continuous, it's basically an outdoor shopping Mm -hmm. mall with all uh, of the national retailers that you would expect, some great local retailers, and that's what I think might be next for downtown, would be an actual area, and I would love to see... A section of downtown, and uh, I can see the text messages now, Uh, pedestrian-only sections, maybe a couple of streets. Uh, Edmonton Street comes to mind in particular because they already block it off for the farmer's market. They'll be doing that this morning, actually, 9 until noon or 1 today. Edmonton Street dead ends at Portage Avenue. I would love to see that become a pedestrian mall. Uh, there's just so many incredible things that you can do with pedestrian first spaces. And, uh, that, that would be. Couple of things I'd like to see.
2: It also then forces people into a certain area, which is better sometimes for the retailers. You don't have your; it becomes like a, a mall, the outdoor mall, and then your 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 mass your your appeal to more people is there, right? Mm-hmm. You have you have a greater number of customers that come through the area because part of the struggle, like if you walk down Portage Avenue right now, particularly closer to Maine, it's really just a it's a lot of empty spaces where leases are up, or it's the bargain stores and the dollar which no knock against them; they're good too, but it's just people passing by. Yeah, and you're battling the noise. It's not really a destination, whereas if you close something off, it becomes a destination.
0: Yeah, perhaps you could uh, create a situation where the sidewalks are heated, so the snow... Build up isn't as great. Oh, now you're
2: getting just no,
0: I, it's so fancy. It's, you know what? It's a heated, it's high called vision, Loran. It's 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 seeing something <laughs> that is possible yeah, and I've having the having the courage to take it down, it. Greg. Well, uh, here we go. I'm ready. Seven eight zero sixty eight sixty
1: eight. Challenge my vision. Can we put a uh, water park with slides yes. That, yes, please. That interconnect through all yes. the buildings at yep. True North Square? Yes. Anything that has to do with a water slide. But and, it has to be really, really
2: big. And the grocery store could be in the middle, so you could like slide through and grab your like prime rib or whatever on the <laughs> that, way. That,
0: that pick and pay? Yeah. Do they have that at Sobeys? Yeah. Yeah. Pick and pay. You order it, and then you start in the water slide. Yeah. You say, thank you, on your way by, and you grab it, waterproof bag.
1: Now and that's vision. Back that's that. vision, Greg.
2: <laughs> there, now you got that's me. I'm back insanity. in, baby. I'm
1: back in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but on the subject of that grocery store though yes the family foods is there that what is that on donald yes and uh, it's a good just little south shop yeah of uh, broadway i believe mm-hmm. okay but, but they could still use one that's a little bit closer in cuz that 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 one location isn't enough i don't think to no serve well all if you think downtown. about even
2: just the, or or the exchange like the west and east exchange has yeah. added thousands of people to that area with its condos and developments in recent years and you'd still have to go to st boniface or over the bridge, I think I'm trying to think of where the nearest grocery store or that Family Foods,
0: Safeway. If you like, if you're going to St. Boniface, that's what I'm saying. And between closest, and, that's, and I think that's, that's the
2: closest one. Barely just so you're getting in. Like, bottom line, like the uh, the Family Foods is a great little is a great shop, but it's it, it doesn't mean we can't have more and and bigger and and all the rest.
0: The cities where downtown living is attractive is where you don't need to have a car where it's sort of car optional and you can do all the things you want to do. You can pick up your groceries every day. You're not going to Costco. Yeah. If you live in gas town in Vancouver and your 400 square foot condo, you're going to the grocery store every day or every other day. It's part of the culture. It's part of what you do.
2: The number of admitted and active patients in the St. Boniface Emergency Department has reached critical and unsafe levels. That's the message in a letter from hospital directors to staff that went out yesterday. And in that letter obtained by CJOB and Global News, it's asking for a 24-hour emergency redirection from the ER. Krista Williams is the Chief Health Operations Officer for the WRHA and joins us now to explain. Good morning, Krista. Good morning. Okay, what does this mean? Because I know we've heard of one or two hour redirections from the ER before but 24 hours sounds extensive
5: so I think we've talked before that we are, are within our system we've been challenged with seeing an increase in acuity overall obviously St. Boniface has um, been challenged with um, higher acuity um, and, and surges from time to time and and they have um, they were struggling yesterday with an increased number of volumes In our system, uh, you know, we have mechanisms and processes to look at when one site is really struggling, how the other sites can support them. Um, Just to clarify, with this memo, it actually talks about temporary redirecting requests for admissions. So um, what the site was saying is uh, sometimes we do direct admissions uh, to uh, hospitals that aren't necessarily uh, emergent or urgent. Um, but that uh, if we could redirect those elsewhere, that's what we would look at doing or hold off on them if they aren't necessary at that period of time for the 24 hours.
0: Krista, how common are these? Are they common or not?
5: So when we talk about um, a request for uh, uh, redirecting of admissions, that's not common. This has happened uh, maybe one other time at the site, Um, but just to be clear also though, we do have a separate process in our system, a safeguard, when we're talking about ambulance redirections, which which, uh, there is a regional policy on that, and that's to ensure that patients that need emergency services always get to them um, in a timely way.
2: When I, if I'm listening right now and I hear the term reached critical and unsafe levels in, at a hospital, and then I also hear that this has only happened one other time before, I'm, I'm left to be extremely worried if I'm being honest and, and wondering uh, if this is just sort of a sign of more things to come with a system that is in flux.
5: So what I would say is that um, we worked together very collaboratively with St. Boniface to manage the um, surge that they had in the patients and the admitted patients. Uh, We worked across the system to make sure that um, other sites helped out yesterday. Um, So uh, there was a lot of work that was done with uh, supporting uh, St. Boniface to make sure that they could provide safe care in that emergency department. Um, And we will continue to work very closely with St. B. um, As we have each day when they are dealing with challenges, we're there to support them, and the other sites will also support them through these uh, challenging times when they do see these surges.
0: Christa, are we out of this emergency situation or are we still in it?
5: Uh, we've been in contact with the site and um, they are planning on, um, uh, uh, they are expecting that this afternoon that this would be deactivated.
2: When it comes to, we've heard a lot about morale at the hospitals recently, Krista, and I just think it needs to be addressed because the morale of patients is also low. We're getting texts right now from people that say they're just waiting far too long for care in ERs, even with all these changes that are supposed to make things better. So it's, it's a pretty big question, but it doesn't feel like it's getting better. And, and when can we see ourselves coming through or finding the light at the end of this tunnel? Well,
5: you know, we've once again, we're going through big system change. Um, We're trying to support the staff as much as as we can through this. We've made some adaptations to our plan, our healing or health system, most recently. Um, We're working through um, the labour adjustments around that and trying to stabilise. Our goal is to try to get the information, stabilise things as quickly as we can with the staff so that they know the changes, what this means to them, Uh, Our commitment is to try to work very closely with them to get them the answers that they need um, and to work hard on um, engaging them and supporting them through this change.
2: You mentioned acuity, an increase in acuity. I just want to quickly clear up what that means. Pardon me? You mentioned something about an increase in acuity with patients at the hospital. So what what are you actually seeing? What's the issue in terms of the kind of patients that are presenting?
5: so what 've seen um, what we 've seen and we 've talked about before across the system actually is a a sustained, a sustained number of individuals that are coming by ambulance and that are, um, that are sicker coming to our emergency departments. And and the impact that that has in our system is is that um, a, a lot of times these patients need to be admitted. Um, so that puts a lot of pressure on our emergency departments. And I think one of our strategies that we're working on right now um, as, as a critical priority and just finalizing is we're adding additional beds. They're, they're, they're temporary beds, but we're going to add those beds um, to the acute care sites um, to support us, and not only for the next month, but we're looking at, uh, at adding those additional beds for a period of possibly up to a year, just as we're going through transition to help manage these surges even a little bit more. Sites have always opened up over-capacity beds or additional beds, but this is giving some more stability to the system to help us through these transitions.
1: Krista Williams, Chief Health Operations Officer with the WRIJ. Thank you very much for joining us. Tackling McGarry and McNabb. Very excited about this next conversation, Greg. And you've set it up here for us. Why don't you get us started?
0: Well, our next guest has been to a part of the world most humans have been avoiding since April 25th, 1986. I'm
3: pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable.
0: In terms of radiation, I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest X-ray. no. Chernobyl is on fire. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal, concrete, flesh. Now Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. Some of them will not stop firing for 50,000 years. Tell me how to put
1: it out you are dealing with something that has never occurred on this planet before.
0: That is from the critically acclaimed HBO miniseries titled, Chernobyl, and since 1994, our guest, Scottish-born Canadian photographer, has journeyed 21 times to the Chernobyl exclusion zone as one of the first artists to gain access to the exclusion zone. Our guest has initially explored the evacuated areas with few constraints and in solitude, save for an occasional scientist monitoring the effects of radioactivity. Returning year after year enabled him to revisit the sites of earlier photographs, sometimes fortuitously, sometimes by design, bearing witness to the forces of nature as they reclaim the abandoned communities. Above all, his commitment has been to probe the relentless dichotomy between growth and decay in the zone. His book is Growth and Decay, Pripyat and the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone, he calls Winnipeg home. Our guest is David McMillan. Good morning, David. Good morning. An absolutely fascinating pictorial. Uh, The story is incredible. Got to start by asking what drew you to this part of the world, to this story, to this disaster?
6: Well, I'd been photographing landscapes throughout North America for the most part and sort of interested in the, the tension between... The natural world and you know what we've built, and I read about the accident. There was an article in Harper's Magazine in 1994 by a man called Alan Weissman, who had just visited the exclusion zone and described the situation, the look of it, um, the fact that it was beginning to seem overgrown. And you know, I hadn't thought about the aftermath of the accident very much, but the article focused me onto that, and it seemed like something I'd find interesting if I could get access. So uh, luckily I was able to get access and went for the first time in 1994, which was eight years after the accident, and uh, I felt I hadn't seen enough. So I decided to go back, and I thought, well, why not go again? You know, I kept going. I have kept going. In fact, I've been there 22 times. The The most recent was last November. And it, it seems inexhaustible in some ways. It's, it sort of opens up, you know, new avenues to photograph each time I'm there.
2: The what? photos themselves, sorry, I just wanted to paint a picture if everyone, if everyone's listening and wondering what they look like. You're, you're talking about what you'd imagine for a, a nuclear power plant in terms of the cement structure and all the rest. But then you get inside and so you have the peeling paint and, and the dirt and you have trees growing in and roots. Uh, was there one part of it that when you walked in that completely took you by surprise or something you maybe didn't expect when you were there?
6: Well, I think the most surprising thing was seeing a tree growing in the middle of a hotel room. This was maybe my third visit. And, you know, by then I'd seen a lot of things and it did seem surreal in some ways. Just, you know, the juxtapositions of pictures of Lenin with dolls and kindergartens. But the tree was really surprising because it was a concrete floor. There was a carpet you know, covering the floor, uh, I saw a broken water pipe, and I assumed that water had flooded the carpet. Someone walked through with seeds on their clothing, or a bird flew in, and there was this tree and some ferns, and, you know, it seemed remarkable.
1: Yeah, just uh, looking at the picture is uh, the before and after, and I recently watched a documentary on Netflix called Our Planet, uh-huh. which largely focuses on the, the bad things that we're doing to our planet, and But it it also wanted to show that nature can recover in spite of the things that we're doing. And one of the places they visited was Chernobyl. And I was astounded to see the growth that has happened there and how nature has essentially reclaimed that zone and even animals returning there. So every year when you go back and you see the ever-growing changes... Uh, is it almost is it inspiring in a way?
6: Well, it is. I mean, it's heartening, let's say. i mean, it it's everyone thinks of the place as it is a disaster area, but i I didn't expect nature to to come back as quickly as it had. You know, I sort of imagined that there would be this kind of wasteland. I mean, I, I didn't know what it would look like, you know, when I first went. They did have to cut down something called the Red Forest, which maybe you've heard of. It was a large area near the nuclear reactor that all, all the pine needles, uh, the needles on the pine trees turned red. So they had to cut all the trees down and bury them as, as nuclear waste. So I thought there'd be landscapes that were kind of denuded, but... Then when I got to Pripet, uh, on my first visit, I saw an outdoor basketball court with trees you know, higher than the backboard, mm. and I thought that was amazing in eight years. I ended up speaking to someone who was in charge of forestry there, and he really— was noncommittal about whether radiation stimulated some plants. But I think certainly with pine trees, it has. I mean, there are corkscrew needles and and sort of excessive cone production. But for the most part, yeah, the the fact that there's such substantial growth and now, you know, within buildings, um, I'm sure in a few years, well, in a few decades at least, you won't know whether you're inside or outside in that city.
0: Are there and, any protocols you have to go through in order to, to go to the exclusion zone, to, to leave, and, and yes. any concerns for your health?
6: Well, so first of all, protocols. Originally, it was somewhat challenging. I had to have a visa and um, permission from the person administering the place. And even today, you have to go through. To get to Pripet, you go through a series of three checkpoints, And to get out, you have to go through a radiation detector. I mean, you stand on this thing. Uh, But it's much easier today. You may know that they are tourists. I mean, they're they're flocking to the place. And I think this HBO series is Mm -hmm. going to—I mean, from my point of view, it's a challenge. If I'm there and I see a busload of tourists, it's— it's like, you know, it is like a black Disneyland of some sorts. People are going to take selfies and, you know, show their friends and sort of forgetting what it really represented. But I guess I have to conclude that if, if I'm there, I guess I'm a form of a tourist myself. I can't really, you know, condemn those that want mm-hmm. to do what I'm doing. But as far as health concerns, it's, uh, you know, I was aware of, of the harm that could happen because of radiation Um, The people that drove me around and, you know, interpreters and things knew the areas that were the most contaminated. So, you know, you don't linger if you can help it. Uh, In some cases, they'd say, well, you you should throw your shoes away after an area I'd been in. But there was no special clothing. I mean, I, I met people who told me I should have changed a couple of times. In you know, clothing, depending on where I was, the only for the first five years or so, you had to change out of clothing they issued you that wasn't protective, merely clothing that you wore when you were in these contaminated areas and you changed into your street clothing for, you know, dining halls and and things like that. So, you know, I've been there, well, over 25 years, going for over 25 years. And, you know, who knows Uh, As far as I'm concerned, it's been no problem.
1: Our guest is David McMillan. He is a Winnipeg photographer and now author. He's put together a book called Growth and Decay, Pripet in the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. And a lot of people talking about Chernobyl of late because of the HBO miniseries, which we mentioned. It's the highest rated TV show of any in history on Mm -hmm. imdb.com with a 9.6 rating. Uh, David, have you watched Chernobyl? Yes, I have. Did they get it right?
6: Well, of course, I wasn't there in 1986, <laughs> but the, the the set decoration is amazing. I mean, the even down to the eyeglasses that people are wearing. I mean, it, it was very much like what I saw years later. You know, both the way the people dressed and the color of the you know the interiors. Um, the recreation of of the reactor itself. I mean, from the outside was really spot on. So. I've only read one criticism. It was by a Russian woman who felt that the series failed to adequately address class distinctions, even though, you know, there were supposedly none. You know, there were all these layers of class that didn't seem to occur. But that, that's a, a minor quarrel. The, the physical look of it seemed really accurate.
2: And as so much as your book and the pictures are absence of people because it's really about the decay and the, the juxtaposition between yeah. the the bush and, and the nature and all the rest kind of coming into, you know, ships in the water and, and basketball courts. You mentioned the tree through the basketball court. There's this feeling, I think, when you look at the pictures of, of an, an emotion that you'd have if you were someone that just still lived in and around yes. that area. Yeah. And I'm curious how your conversations went for people when you tell them what you're there doing. And, and how they feel about that and how they've moved on or haven't moved on yes. from what happened.
6: Well, the fact is there aren't really very many people there. I mean, the, the people I'm with are drivers and um, interpreters, mm-hmm and some of them I've I've worked with continuously. So I have very few conversations, because I don't speak Ukrainian primarily, with people that live there. But um, my sense of being there probably is a lot different than theirs. The ones that have returned, I mean, everyone was evacuated, but many, let's say, five or 600 older people returned to live in their ancestral villages. And, you know, they seem to manage. They seem willing to... Uh, live one house in the whole village or, you know, maybe they have a neighbor three houses down and they'd rather be there than in their, let's say, a city like uh, Kiev or another large city where they don't know anyone. But my experience is very different. I mean, it's a kind of mixture of sadness because of the tragedy and, you know, the number of people that were either injured, you know, their health was affected or what they lost, which was virtually everything. I mean, in Pripet, there's still hospital records and school records. So people were told they were going away for a few days and they left behind pets even as well as, you know, their school records and medical records and, and uh, you know, just things like photographs of the family and, you know, that kind of paraphernalia that they weren't able to take. Some people were able to return and pick up some of their you know, items that they left behind, the keepsakes, I guess you'd call them. But for most people, it was just complete, completely starting over. It's impossible
0: to not imagine the world without human beings when you look at your
6: yes. pictures, the, yeah. the,
0: the world period.
6: Yes. Well, it is, I think, the subtitle, there's an essay in the book and it's something like an intimation of how the world would end And I used to imagine that when I was a teenager, I read a book called On the Beach and Neville Shute, the author, an Australian, described the aftermath of a nuclear conflagration and the rest of the world apparently had perished, but the radioactive cloud hadn't reached Australia. I remember it well. Well, there was a film made as well. So anyway, a submarine from Australia goes to look at the U.S. coast because they think they hear an electronic signal that maybe there's some life. But, you know, everything's intact. All the buildings are intact, but there's no life. It's, uh... So it was an eerie feeling because this was kind of the realization of something I had feared. Um, I, I'm from Scotland, but I, my parents emigrated to the United States, and it was during the Cold War, you know, that there was this tension and this threat. And uh, anyway, Pripet seemed to be the embodiment of the aftermath of some kind of nuclear conflagration.
1: His book is called Growth and Decay, Pripet in the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. It's available now. It's a collection of his marvelous photographs of this incredible part of our world. To see the juxtaposition, as Loren pointed out, of the growth, the nature returning, and the decay of the structures that we built and had to evacuate after the disaster. David McMillan, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think,